Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. What is up? Power Learning is on. On. It is I, Van Lathan Jr. And it's me, Rachel and Lindsay. Good morning. So I had a dream. I have a good morning. We're up. We're doing it a little early today, guys. A little. It's, it's very early. <laughs> it's, it's 7 a.m. As we're, as we're recording this. So you might hear a little sleep in my voice, but I do have a fresh dream. Great. Maybe we should start doing these first thing in the morning. So we, because you're a vivid dreamer, but like regularly. I am yeah. probably weekly. So you'd say you like, you have maybe like one once a week. Oh, I had one. I had a vivid dream, uh, not last night, the night before. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Was it about fatherlessness and how to combat it? Close. Um, <laughs> what was it about? Zombies. I frequently dream about the end of the world. Like the end mm. of days. God, not, not, not like revelation in the days, like the plagues, but just like there's some outbreak and zombies are coming or aliens are attacking us. I, and I'm always running. I'm always, and I'm always in my neighborhood in Oak Cliff. It's very weird. Mm-hmm. And I constantly have these dreams. That in tornadoes, I would say I dream about the most. So maybe I'm just living this really chaotic life. Things are in a mess. Or a mess. Um, anyways, I was running, running, no, running. No, no, Rachel, you're looking for safety. Is that? Come on, Joseph. You better interpret my dream. That's what it is. Like, all of this calamity, all of this stuff happening, you're looking for safety. Mm. Mm. But I've been having these dreams since I was like a kid. That don't mean nothing. You're still looking for safety. But you're I've always safety felt from safe. The, from, nah, man, not from the judge. <laughs> the judge. Not from the judge. Ooh. You felt safe. The judge was protective of you, but you were like, you, you, you know, the judge. I don't want to take away from the judge. The judge is my guy, but you know, you were like, oh, I don't know. You're looking for safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the okay, though, no, just just to um, take a quick Hello. detour. Fun fact: topic that we were going to cover that we're not covering today on the podcast. Eric Johnson, mayor of Dallas, moving from the Democratic Party to going Republican. My dad swore him in, you know, when he was a Democrat. And then mm-hmm. for his second, I'm using air quotes, and then for his second um, term, he had John Cornyn, Senator John Cornyn. So people should have right. known what was happening. So there's a huge switch. But my dad's one of that. I said, oh, probably have a lot of so opinions that you can't share with me. You're trying to say it's the judge's fault uh-uh, that this uh-uh, happened. uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. We're gonna, move back like to what we're, t- we're gonna move back to the dream. Anyways, I was running through, I was running through, and I was like, and there were, they weren't zombies, they were gargoyles perched on top mm. of buildings. And I think this is because this is a Paris thing, right? Like I think mm. could be I think could be, you know, we, you know, Notre, Notre Dame and all of that. There were gargoyles and they were stone, and you didn't know when, but they would come to life and they would come down and they would attack people. And uh-huh. so like, but they were on every building and then some were like hidden in trees. And so we were running, running. I don't know what we were running to. And it was Brian and he was taking his time. And I was like, come on, Brian, hurry up, hurry up. And he was just taking his time. And then he, then I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead. No, we were going to a hotel. And I was like, I'm going to go ahead and get to this hotel because we have to get there first. And I get into the hotel and I check in. And when I come out, Brian's gone. All right, I, you 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 got balls of fucking steel telling this dream on this podcast right now. <laughs> I mean, 
you you want people to. I mean, I don't know what to. You 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 you. I'm gonna fucking just actually not even banter on that. I'm gonna move past that, okay? Because I don't know what the fuck's going on with you this morning. Like you, you can't. Um, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna move past. I that. just ran ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. To lead us um, to safety. <laughs> Shut up. Whoa. Okay. Tell me your dream. Um, Tell me your dream. Well, before before I before I talk about my dream, I want to talk about something that everybody should watch when it relates to gargoyles. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Have you ever seen it? Come on, now you know I haven't. Okay, so look, there is one of the best gargoyle-related stories ever. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. All right, gargoyles, starring uh, what's the fucking guy that played? He was in the Warriors. And he also was in Sex in the City. Uh, and Radon Chong is in this vignette as well. He God was on The Warriors. James. He was in the, he was on the, the goddamn movie, The Warriors. Not oh, the Bay like, Area basketball, basketball player. <laughs> he was Rachel. in Sex in the City. Rachel. Okay. James Remar. James Remar, um, they, they you, you you're telling dreams that say way too much, and then at the same time you're talking about nah, this was in the eighties, okay? It's not Steph Curry, but it's about gargles. I would give you guys the whole plot, but this is more homework. You guys came through with drum. Y'all don't want to see. That. I'm fucking with everybody that was watching drum. I know some of you guys probably like drum a little too much because we got some white ladies that watch that, that listen to this. You guys probably got into drum because you know what you want. But James Remar, Radon Chong, Tales from the Dark Side. I'm pretty sure it's from the movie, but find the sketch. Find the sketch. He's an artist. He falls in love with her. It has to do with gargoyles. It is amazing. I'm not even going to ruin that. I could give you the whole plot right now. Find it, watch it, report back to me. That's your homework. This is my dream. For some reason, um, I'm back in Baton Rouge in a lot of my dreams. And my See? father is just in all, my father's in all of them. He's yeah. in every single dream I have, okay? It, it, it is just the way that things are now. It's my, my dad's in every dream. So last night, I dreamed that me and dad were hunting. And, um, and I had uh, a deer in my sights, but I didn't kill the deer. I, I did not shoot the deer. Why? And I just didn't want to. Okay. I'm looking at the deer. And I did not kill the deer. And I walk over to where the deer is. And my dad walks up to me. He goes, that's okay, son. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And then a dog runs up to us. And I'm like, whose dog is that? And he goes, that's everybody's dog. And I start petting the dog. And then after I petted the dog, I do this thing where, which happens in my dreams where I'm transformed. And now, <laughs> I'm like, like, not transformed, like a, a transported, should I say. And now I'm in um, a, a quick trip. I'm walking inside of a quick trip in the dream. And I walk inside and I don't have my gun. And I'm like, should I bring my gun in here? And I see that the guy behind the quick trip is getting money out of the cash register and there's a gun in the cash register. So I go back out to the truck 
and I get my gun and I put it in, I'm wearing overalls with cargo pockets and I put my gun in one of the cargo pockets because I don't know why I feel like I need my gun walking into this quick trip. So I walk into the quick trip, I got the gun and I go and I get some stuff. I'm looking for some food, but they don't have any. So I go get some water. I come back to the, not water, I go get some vodka and I come back to the, uh, to the to the the counter and Natalie Nunn is behind the counter. And I'm talking to Natalie. Why? She's like, "You watching Zooks last night?" I don't know. I'm talking to Natalie. We're going back and forth, and like Natalie, she's like, "Hey, how you doing?" She's, and she says, "I remember when you were younger, and you and your hair and you, you gained some weight." And I'm like, "Yeah, man, you know, like we're laughing about blah blah blah." And then she sees a guy behind me, and she takes him outside and talks to him about joining the cast of baddies about joining Zeus network. And while, and while that's happening, somebody comes in, looks looking like they're about to rob the quick trip. And I think about going for my gun, but I just leave the quick trip. I thought you said you didn't have your gun. I went back out and got it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It was my, my, yeah, that's the, that was the dream. I don't know how to interpret that one. There was only one more thing that happened in the dream. For some reason, I dreamed that I woke up. Uh, There's a little quick snip in the dream. I dreamed that I woke up and wanted to drink some water, but it was really vodka. I don't even drink like that. Who knows? Whatever. The dreams. 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 You drink vodka? See, I feel like that should be the dream that I have because you know I haven't been drinking. Still going strong, guys. Still going strong. Yeah, nigga, don't believe you. I'm two weeks. Um, Oh, please. I've seen some of the criticism you've been getting online. Which one? That I I talk black and sleep white? Who said that? (laughs) I get that all the time. People call me a bed wench all the time. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, I love, that's my favorite insult. This is what I'll tell you about some of the insults that come online from some corners of Black America. They're really good. Butter biscuits is one of my favorite things. The butter biscuits is one of my butter biscuits, <laughs> bad wench. These are such grade A insults. But I saw actually a picture of you. And it was you on one side. And the other side, it was a picture of the judge. And they had highlighted. What? Where are you? Yep. You might, y'all better leave my daddy out of this. They highlighted the fact it was the judge's Wikipedia that the judge was appointed by Bill Clinton. And they said, that's why you don't like Larry Elder because Bill Clinton appointed the judge. You're a shill for the Democrats. My poor, (laughs) y'all leave my dad out of this. You're a shill for the Democrats. That's what you are. All you had to do was press play on our interview. No, I'm not. All you had to do was press play on our interview to see why I don't like Larry Elder. Stop. Mm -hmm. Stop. Well, I I mean, look, I haven't seen, like, I mean, I guess the typical criticism, like I said, about the bed wench stuff, but not too much. Not too much. But you know me. I'll I'll look at the internet for five minutes and then get off. So I don't know. It could all be crit- criticism out there. Yeah, the, the, the interview caused fucking carnage in my friend circles. I was getting hit up by many different people. Not even going to talk about it. Look, um, you, you know, Rach, as we look back on the Larry Elder interview, I think it's important for us to tell people something. Okay. It's important for me to say something. Go ahead. Two things. Number one, in all future interviews, I'll do a better job at not filibustering in the interview because I do going back and listening to it. 
Uh, I do feel like there was balance needed between me and Larry, and Rachel provided that balance perfectly, but sometimes I get caught up. That's on me. Won't happen again. I'm getting better every single day. Number two is I want everybody to know something. We were determined not to fight with Larry Elder. (laughs) We really were. We talked about it weeks ago. Yeah, we were determined not to fight with Larry Elder. I don't know what Rachel's going to ask. Rachel doesn't know what I'm going to ask. But one thing that we did agree on was like, let's not make this into a fight, into a contentious situation. Let's see if there's some possible way to get to an intellectual understanding with Larry Elder, even if there are agreements, even if we're interpreting information in a different way, even if we're coming at some of the problems uh, that Black people in America face from, from different sides. He wouldn't have it. Like, the, after he got to his back, it was obvious he wanted to fight. And so that's what it became. I don't know what else to say about it, but it, that's kind of, that was kind of the whole deal. I don't want ever a replay of Emmanuel Acho or Michael Rappaport or any of those situations. That wasn't what I was into. And that I know that's not what Rachel was into. Like she said, we talked about it, but he just wouldn't have it any other way. I think he had the most fun of anyone. <laughs> he I did, do. He didn't, he wouldn't have it any other way, but it's hard to have that type of interview or conversation or whatever you want to call it, because it wasn't supposed to be a debate. It was supposed to be an interview, a conversation when the other side won't concede to anything. It's like, I mean, from the top of the interview, you know, you asking if he liked what he liked about black people. I don't think you said being black. You said black. What do you love about black people? That's what you said. There was never any opportunity to give credit to being black, to black people, to to big up things that black people have done as a whole. There was none of that. There was all there was a constant blaming of black people. And after an hour, that becomes a little bit too much. There wasn't even not even that we were necessarily trying to agree on anything, but it was more of like, let's talk about some of these things. There just seems to be this disdain and this will to want to challenge and put down everything that Black people do. And I think, I don't know if I was expecting that that wouldn't be the case the whole time, but I guess some of it caught me off guard. I felt like when there were questions like, okay, so Black people have done what, what, you know, white people or even you, Larry Elder, have asked them to do, and yet still it's been taken away from them. What do you think about those things? It was hit with not even addressing that question. It was another statistic or or another topic. That was frustrating. So it's like he came in. I don't know if he watched interviews, you know, that we've done before. I don't know if he looked you up looked me up. I don't know, but he came ready. Even certain things that he was saying, like, well, you guys think this. And it's like, well, we never said that today. So where are you getting oh, that Oh, him from? and I have gotten into it before. Oh, you have? Y'all have it, you've yeah, interviewed he, him? He came on TMZ. Yeah, I don't know uh, if he remembers. But, um, he probably does. Uh, he's been friends with Harvey for a long time. No shocker there. Now, look, uh, I think it's important to say something. I personally believe that there's room in the Black thought diaspora for all different types of political thought, meaning I don't look at Black conservatives as some sort of pariah to 
the per, the progress of black people. I don't. I don't look at conservatives like that, period. I think there are people that believe certain things about America, about capitalism, and those people have points of view. Um, there might be some places where their points of view are informed by things other than maintaining the status quo. And I'd be interested to hear those things and hear those views and go back and forth in an intellectually honest way and, you know, have it out, do the whole thing. However, when it becomes obvious that you're not interested in the discussion of history or contemporary experiences in any real and meaningful way, you got to kind of get a little bit of the fuck out of my face. You know, it, it, if, if your approach is talking points that you can't be budged from in the face of not even overwhelming evidence, but in the face of uh, even small nuggets of things maybe you didn't think about or truths that you didn't know, then you're not in any way trying to have a nourishing and productive conversation. Right. And right. so it, to, to, to that degree, you know, once it becomes unserious, I just don't have the capacity to keep being serious. Once it becomes unserious, once I see that you're a stuffed suit, it, it's kind of empty, then I, I, can't, I can't pretend like I'm not laughing at you. It's just not how I am. How many minutes in the interview, into the interview, did it become unserious to you? Uh, you know, after he got, pretty much when we got to the crosstalk, I mean, after he got through the canned, um, the points that he was going to make, the, the robotic part of it, and it started to be honest, that he, it started to be obvious, should I say, that he wanted to fight and that he really wasn't there to do anything other uh, than just have it out between two more uppity Negroes. Um, or maybe he's the uppity Negro, I'm not sure. Are we uppity? Probably so. I am. Um, and so, yeah, you definitely are. <laughs> uh, and so at that point, I'm like, well, let's just fucking have some fun. You know, um, like these, we're, we're not dealing with, we're not dealing with anything that's like, we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel here. A lot of this stuff is just, it's very dis- basic level. I would disagree with you. About. I would what? disagree with you. I would say the, from his very first answer, it became unserious. From the very beginning, you if you can't if you can't answer the question of what do you love about black people and your response is I love all people when you can't refer to yourself as black or even African American, you say I'm an American who's black. That set the tone for the whole thing. It really did. But you know, I don't really have a problem with that. That's fine. I did. I know, but what I'm saying is I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's so far away. From- from how I view things, so I'm like the other side of my thought process. But you know, if if people decide that what they want to do is enter into some huge assimilation pie, and they want to forgo the specificity of the black experience, I can't make them be black. I don't care. You know, it's- if you if you decide, it, 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 I do think it's interesting to spend your entire life discussing a group that you don't love or have very much connection to. 
that was more of my point to Larry Elder. Whether or not these people out there want to be called Black, you know, they want to be biracials or whatever, I think it's telling. But at the same time, I think it's kind of their business. But if you spend your entire life talking about what one community should do, how what one community should act, and essentially evangelizing to and for that community all over the place, and you don't even much really give a fuck about them niggas in, a, in any type of specific way, that I find to be interesting. And, and I'm not saying and that he does I'm saying that I find to be interesting. I'm not saying that he necessarily said that. I'm saying that he was very careful not to say, you know what? I really, really love black people. I really, I see the smiles of little black children. Like when I'm walking down the street and I think, God, damn, look at them teeth. Like he didn't even have, a, he didn't even give us an anecdote. He was like, I love people. That's Fuck what it. I'm more so pointing to is the avoiding of the exact question that set the tone for, and in particular, the subject matter as well about Black people. That, to me, set the tone for the entire interview. And that's why yeah. it ended the way that it did. Why it ended the way it did. Like, get the fuck out of here. Just Larry, Larry. <laughs> Look, I, um, so that's in the past. Look, uh, you guys, we're, stri- we're still trying to get Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that we've maybe kicked the Wait. can on RFK Jr., no, 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 no. Why would you still want to talk to Vivek after, after, first off, he's falling in the polls. There was a time mm-hmm. where it could have been more interesting. After his performance of last night, why would you even want to talk to Vivek? What's the purpose? I understand, even though some people were critical of the fact, like, why would you give Larry Elder a platform? We explained that at the beginning of last week or last podcast. To me, there's no point in talking to Vivek. And it and I'm telling you, it will lead to a contentious conversation. There's no way I don't think it will. There's no way it'll just be a question and answer. I've no, I've no desire to talk to Vivek at this point. Well, for okay, so let me tell you why I'm interested in this. And I'll just tell Please. everybody. I'm interested in have having presidential candidates here on Higher Learning. I think it's good for the podcast. I think it's good for Agreed. us. Okay. And so these guys are running for president. Really, anybody from the GOP side that would like to come on Higher Learning and talk to us and, you know, roll out what their specific vision for America is, I think it's important. Um, I watched the debates last night. We're going to talk about them in a little bit. Maybe not robustly talk about them because it's kind of like... it was nothing. Kind of like a a bunch of people auditioning to be Jermaine Jackson, which is interesting. Don't talk about (laughs) It's only one. Okay. Don't do and the rest of them the, like that. Janet? Okay. I'm talking about the fellas. You did say uh, Janet, that. You did say yeah. that. I, I said Jermaine Jackson. And of, of them niggas, love to all of them. Okay. Of them niggas, there's one. Okay. And then the rest of them Jeez. are really dope. Everybody's talented. See, we have to we have to not be afraid of the difference between good and great. Nobody's arguing. Be, you basically wrote all of them off. That's all I'm saying. I'm not I'm not no, saying they're Michael. I was I'm talking just, about, about the guys and they're all talented. But one of them was this amazing, shining, bright star supernova. And unfortunately, on the Republican side, you have a lot of people who seem OK, I guess, for that constituency and base. They all look 
kind of silly to me, but they also have a Michael Jackson. So the debates are essentially Jermaine auditions. That's what they are because it, the, the Jermaine is cool. Go listen to Can You Feel It? All right. And I, we've done this before. Listen to the beginning of Can You Feel It when Jermaine is singing and it's a cool, up-tempo funk song. And then when Mike comes and you get chills, that's how Republican <laughs> voters feel <laughs> about what they saw on the stage last night, right? <laughs> but it's still important because these people are being taken seriously in the primary and to a degree, all of them have made different type of rep- reputations besides Vivek Ramaswamy uh, in American uh, political discourse. You have senators up there, you have governors up there, you have um, you know, the people in Congress up there, you have all different types of people that are representing different swaths of Americana. It's just important to talk to them. I think we'll have all of them. I'll have all of them at the same time. We should do a debate. Higher learning debate. We can. I'd be more interested in having somebody who had a little bit more like, I just know what we're going to get from Vivek and it won't be a meaningful conversation. I know what we're going to get. If we were going to really have a presidential candidate, I would want like a Nikki Haley. I would love to have Tim Scott. No, I don't. But I would rather have one of like a Tim Scott just because it's Tim Scott. How do you feel about Tim Scott after last night? The same, way I, the same way I felt about him before. I think he went crazier last night. I'm not gonna lie. I think but, Tim Scott before before this before this primary. I think we all had issues with Tim Scott, but the savage weakness, the ruthless fecklessness that Tim Scott exhibits every single time he gets an opportunity to speak. It's breathtaking. He is aggressively pussy. It's it's like, it's, it's so, it's like. As a a black man, not for them. If he was white and saying that, it wouldn't come across that way. It comes across that way because he's, those things are coming out of his mouth and he looks a certain way. That's why I, it's not even that. It's not even that. It's not even that. It, it's not. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I know a lot of people who know Tim Scott and, uh, you know, most of them are Democrats. All of them are Democrats and they like Tim Scott. Right? I'm sure he is nice. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he doesn't seem to have one shred of the makings of a leader. It's so interesting that he's come this far. Um, Not and there to are other me. people up there on the uh, there are other people up there on the stage that I that I feel similarly about, but at least they're able to comport themselves in ways that don't make them look. Like they have absolutely zero backbone. It's really interesting to me. Am I just tripping because I don't like the fact that he it kowtows for the right? Am I over? I need a rule. No, Donnie, am I not, overstating this? I don't think so. He like when you listen to the things that he says and you watch the way that he says the things that he says. And Rachel has a point. Seeing it come from a black man, it just hits oh, different yeah. in a negative way. So like I, you kind of. Uh, contextualize and describe a thing that I felt but haven't been able to like put words to. 
and 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 that's why it doesn't when you say you're surprised that he's made it this far without a backbone i am not surprised he is a black republican senator he is the only black republican senator and he says everything i mean the way they were talking about tim scott's performance and what he said about fatherlessness and the black community and slavery and and come to where we are now. That's exactly how they want black people to talk. That is what they want black people to believe in. So of course, Tim Scott has made it this far. He wouldn't make it this far if he was on the other side saying these things. So like, I'm not impressed by Tim Scott because he's saying what people in the GOP want to hear from black people. Mm. Nothing he says is shocking to me. And that's I why mean, I say I look, feel the same way I felt before coming in. He was just louder there are, this time. There are all black Republicans that I don't feel like a weak. I don't feel like Byron Donald is a weakling. I mean, he 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 bows down to the majesty of Donald Trump like they all do, but I don't feel like he comes across as if there's no there's nothing to him. I know Tim Scott's trying to be the nice guy of the race, and I think that makes his magical Negroness uh, even more offensive. You know, um, there's no depth to what Tim Scott has to say. I told you before, his speeches literally sound like they're coming from the movie, The Campaign. The way he talks that every time he wraps up um, a spiel or one of his responses, it was she's America. She's a great country. And this is the greatest country in the world. And, And it's like, how did we get here from what the original thing that it was that you were supposed to address? It's like. There's no depth. There's no substance to the things, to his responses in the debate. Hmm. If you had a vote, if you had to cast a vote. No, don't do I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. Why? Okay, fine. If you had to, come on. This this is a thought. We podcast. Can you answer it first? Yeah, I would. I would. If I had to vote for one of them. Yeah. Who would it be? It would be, it'd easily be Nikki Haley. Doug was pissed about last night, man. Doug was so pissed off. Doug was like, they didn't ask me enough questions. Was, I can't hear it. He was raising, he his, raising hand. his hand. <laughs> um, if I had to vote for one of them, it would be, it would be Nikki Haley. And I, I would, I, every candidate on the stage is intensely unelectable, right? intensely like egregiously unelectable it's like you couldn't but if i had to vote for one it would be nikki haley nikki haley seems like she is the least she's the most serious uh candidate up there she's for all of her problems and they are plentiful and all of the wrong things she has said you guys don't get me started nikki haley is is bad on trans rights she's bad on um LGBTQ rights. She's bad on the economy, in my opinion. She's bad on the border. All of them are. Their policy sets are bad on all of these issues. However, if you're just talking about who's up there and seems to be the most mature, uh, the most in the moment of all of them, it would be her. She's the only one that I'm like, you know what? I don't, I disagree with almost everything, but at least she seems genuine. That's what I would say. Well, the narrative coming in about Nikki Haley was that she kept flip-flopping, right? When she announced that she was running for president, everyone was like, well, where does Nikki stand? She keeps flip-flopping. And I think in the the last two debates, 
you have actually seen her agree or disagree, take a stance, stand in it and be able to defend it and even go back and forth and calling out the other candidates that are sharing the stage with her about how she believes that they're wrong. So she's very steadfast in in her beliefs, which was not the narrative that was coming in um, to her announcing that she was running. Let me ask you this. I found the debate to be, and this wasn't even supposed to be our big deal of the day, but here we are. I found the debate to be a waste of time to watch. I found it there to be the same talking points over and over again. I felt like that Trump is the leader. There were some some jabs taken at Trump, specifically by DeSantis, which a lot of people wanted to see because they didn't see him go after Trump in the lot la- the last time. But no one, of course, talked about um the the indictments. Nobody talked about, you know, what he said about General Milley. There weren't, to me, it was the same stuff over and over again. And it seemed like a waste of time and it seemed like we weren't getting anywhere. And it made me wonder how necessary, especially when the front runner doesn't even have to show up to the debate, how necessary are these debates, especially a second one? Hmm. That's how so, I felt after watching. Couple of things. One is I'm never, I never ever want you to stop uh, pronouncing Ron DeSantis's name the way that you do. How did I, I say? Don't know it? why you do it. What did I say? I don't even know what I, I said. DeSantis. How does DeSantis <laughs> is how you say it? It's hilarious. <laughs> just give him a, just give him a little Latino. Give him a little, give him a little, give him a little spice. Uh, um, okay. Well, so, um. It's an interesting question and a very good one. And you can tell that the candidates on the stage feel the same way because even though Donald Trump is not there, they obviously have to attack him and let every, and let the world know that he's not there because it's a gaping hole in the discourse. I'm not sure that the debates would be much more substantive if Donald Trump was there. I mean, they wouldn't mean more, right? There's nothing that Donald Trump could say on that stage that would stop him from being the front runner. Uh, they would just be more entertaining if he was if he was there. They wouldn't be more important, you know. Um, but I, I would I would say this. I think that they are still useful because you get a sense of the gumbo pot, the cauldron of um of Republican views all mashed into one. You get a, I think it's important to have an understanding um, of policy issues that are really driving that party's constituency, right? What do they care about? What's getting applause? What are they at each other's throat about? Like, how does that side of the country really see America? Um, and I feel like we feel like we know, but it's never too much information that you can have. There's never too much information you can have about it. So when you see about, when you see how they feel about, you know, the, the fentanyl crisis or the crisis at the border or inflation or uh, how we should attack um, our relationship with China or the war in Ukraine, um, any of these things, uh, when you see some of the solutions that they've cooked up to some of the problems that persist here in America, where those pro- whether those problems be social, economic, or geopolitical, 
it's still interesting to know what they're talking about because they're battling the finer points of those problems, okay, because they probably all have similar views on them, uh, and they're battling with each, each, other, each other's record. And those two things are important. It's, it's important to know, okay, well, what's the sensible take on this and what's the absurd take on it? You might not get that on the debate stage, but at least you'd know what the absurd take is. It's also important to kind of know uh, what in these various people's record reflects their ability to talk about uh, what they're going to do or what they will do um, for any of these issues. Like hearing Spence, uh, Spence, Errol Spence, hearing Pence talk about you know, spending in government is just really fucking funny. When they spent their motherfuckers, they they spent their fucking asses off, right? Which DeSantis actually called out. Yeah, of course. And, you know, to hear DeSantis talk about crime in various American states, it's hilarious. When Jacksonville and Miami and other places like that, it's going up. And when you look at Florida as a whole, you're looking at some of the same problems that exist all over America, you know, it's, it's happening there. Um, so I just think that's important. It's never, it's never, I know it's a long period that they uh, that they debate for, but you can never have too much political information. Um, and the debate shouldn't be the end of your political curiosity if you have that about the right or even about the left. It should be the beginning because every issue that they're talking about up there, what people should do if you want to be more politically literate is you should then like y'all did for the vaccine, do the same thing (laughs) for politics, which is do your own research and find out as much about these various issues as you can. And then where you stand on them and then think of some things that maybe aren't being talked about on that stage. Think about some access points that, that questions that you might ask. And I think it's always important to do that. So that's why I watch. And also watch because the shit is just funny. It was a fun. This, this one was a little boring, but yes, I get you. I like to be entertained as well. You didn't think you didn't think Nikki Haley versus Tim Scott was fucking great. They were, were talking about curtains. That yes, curtains. I know. I know they were talking about curtains, but I just I think I was just exhausted from watching it. I don't know. Maybe I was still exhausted from the interview earlier this week. Last random question: Do you think you talk about the way I say DeSantis's name? Do you think he says Kamala on purpose? He never says yeah. her name right. Yeah, they they do their little disrespectful <laughs> shit, you know. Like they do their little disrespectful shit. Yeah, they're not trying to be respectful, man. You know, Tim Scott turned around and he blamed Kamala Kamala. As they said Kamala Harris for. He said there were similar education standards that she signed off on. Yeah, he yeah. said they both should have taken the line out. And well, there is, I looked at that. There is, they, they have, like, that's not as, actually, you know what, Donnie, take that whole thing out. Cause she said she's going to come on the podcast. So let's not get into all of that. Um, uh, yeah. So, you, you know, it, it was, it was uninspired, but it was still, it was entertaining. I was listening to it at the gym. I was on the, on the, on the, uh, on the, on, on the heavy bag and mm-hmm. just listening to them go at it. It was giving me, I was like, Ooh, they fighting. I'm fighting. Let's get it. You like that. That gets you that gets you all riled up. Oh, I I went at um I went to Rumble 
last night. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never done the punching bag. I've never jabbed, none of that. Yeah. And I, I felt like I was a little bit of a natural. You liked it. I loved it. Have mm, you ever been to Rumble? It was a great workout. Nice Shot fake ass boxing. But but it it is it, 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 it's just it's not it's like a boxing turn. It's cool. But are you now willing to fight Heather B? Who? Heather B. Hannah. Hannah B. <laughs> Hannah B. I was like, are you willing to fight? Is, are you Heather willing to B? fight Hannah? <laughs> Somebody told me different. No, are you willing to fight? Shout out Heather B. Sway more. Are you willing? Are you willing to fight Hannah B. Now because you've been running from that smoke for a little while. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. I haven't run away from you, anything. Wait, 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 wait. She she be away. boxing, and I asked you if you were willing to fight her. I'm not gonna. And, I have no need to fight her. There's no reason for me to fight her. There's no reason. Stuck in the smoke. All right. <laughs> uh, that was pleasantries. We got into a lot. That was like a... Well, it was one of our topics. Uh, It was our topics. On the other side is the writers have come to an agreement with the studios. We're going to talk about it. All right, Rachel, how excited are you about the end, partially, of the work stoppage in Hollywood? I'm very excited. I mean, we've talked about it a couple of times about how it's impacting just the city in general, but specifically, you've talked about your friends. I have friends that are really suffering by the fact that nothing is being shot, produced, sets are shut down, studios are shut down. So the fact that it seemed that they were on complete opposite ends and they were able to come to this agreement and the writers who stuck together for five months, I don't have the exact days, five months stuck together in unity, fought through this and seemed to come out the winners on the other side of this. I'm thrilled for them. I'm excited. I mean, I know it's not, I mean, they're talking about late night shows coming back and some of the other talk shows, but it'll take a while for everything else to be, to kind of roll out. But I'm excited that we're on the other side of this, at least halfway. It's definitely a win for the writers. There's so much in this deal that directly addresses concerns that they had. You know, they have, uh, post green light rooms. They have development rooms in here. They have staff writer script fees. Can you break some of that down? Because even like for our listeners that aren't in the industry and even I consider myself adjacent, even reading the agreement, I was like, I have no idea what this means, what they're talking about. So if you can like break it down for us of what... Not necessarily explaining what the rooms mean and everything, but just understanding how they were able to win and why it was this agreement is so much better than any agreement they've ever had before. Okay. I don't know that it's so much better than any agreement they've ever well, had before. Well, that's what I read. I, that's what I read. Okay. This was, this was one um, of the best agreements that they've had or the well, best. You probably, you, you probably it is, it's a great it's a great agreement in my opinion, and I'm not in the WGA guys, and I'm not speaking for the writers, uh, for the writers guild. And if we want to dive a little bit deeper into it, we probably should and will, I don't know that we will have somebody on here to kind of uh, parse it out for us. But from what I can see and from the people that I've talked to, like my entire friend group is in the guild. This addresses some of their concerns very head on. Now, when we're thinking about why there was a strike We've talked a little bit about it here. We're talking about changing landscape. 
and how things work for writers. Let's take, let's say it's 1996, right? You're writing on the show Friends. All right, so you're writing on Friends. Friends is running 22 or 23 weeks and you're making $15,000, $20,000, maybe a little bit less. Who knows how much you're making on Friends, right? You're making that weekly. So okay. the show itself is running longer, right? Um, and the scope of what you're doing on the show is different, right? Two things. So that show runs so long that a, that's a longer amount of pay for you. It's more stuff that you're doing. And then you're getting residuals off that show every time that show is sold. Now, those residuals, uh, they lessen over time, they reduce over time, but still, Friends get sold to TBS. It's still running. You're getting residuals. Friends get sold to goddamn Nick at Night or or whatever. Like it, it's running residuals, although Turner and whatever it might be the same company, I'm not sure. But whenever that show gets sold, you get more money. All right. So you're making more money for a longer time in the front of it, right? At the beginning. And then you're making money essentially in perpetuity to a degree as the show runs. All right. Those two things changed in the streaming era. Number one, the shows ran for less time. Meaning now, if a show is only eight weeks long, then that's only eight weeks of pay for you. The pay is lower and it's shorter. So you have to go out and get another job that year to make the same amount of money that you might have been making before. And writing jobs in Hollywood, even though there are more shows now, and there are a lot more shows, is what the studios would say. The studios would say, hey, well, there used to be 60 or 80 scripted shows a year. And now because of streaming and the various platforms out there, there are 500 shows a year. So being that there are 500 shows a year, there's more opportunity for everyone. But still for the individual writer that's out there, you know, you work on something for eight weeks, um, you have to go find another job. And there's a tremendous amount of insecurity financially that goes along with that, right? Something else happens. When you were working on those network shows, you were learning production from the ground up. And why you were learning it was because you were working with the actors and everybody else on the show as you were writing it. You know, <clears throat> you're, you're in the room and your job in the room was before the show, during the production of the show, and then even after the show, you were still doing stuff as a writer. And so it was invaluable, not just for the amount of time that you worked and for the amount of money that you were making, but for how you were learning the industry. A writer is saying, hey, I don't want this line. I wouldn't say this. You're going, cool, do this, do that, blah, 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 blah. You're changing it up. You're running back and forth. You're learning how to run a show. And so then after a while, you have the skill set needed to become a showrunner. Streaming changed all of that, right? Streaming changed that because now the writer's rooms are number one smaller. Uh, you're not doing hardly anything in post. And you're not really on set as much working with the writers while you're doing this stuff. You're not learning how to run the show as much. It's a different sort of deal that's going on. And the residuals are different because this, the, the, uh, the streamers are essentially tech companies. They did not have to share any of their proprietary information with production companies or with the Writers Guild or with anyone else. Um, and the show only sells once. 
if you write the show for Netflix, it's on Netflix. And the residuals that are being played, paid from Netflix come like in a completely different and way, 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 way smaller amount when they're there. And so there were certain protections that the writers wanted, number one, uh, in the structure and the culture of being a writer, meaning that you that you could learn enough to eventually be a showrunner and have your own showrunner. Because if not, you're going to have the same five guys. You're going to have Kenya Bears, Taylor Sheridan, Ryan Murphy, uh, Shonda Rhimes, whoever, making all the shows forever. And you're never, never going to have the next group of people who are learning how to do that. And that's not a shot to any of those guys. They're just big, super fucking important writers, you know. Um, and at the same time, you're going to have less money, which is going to be, uh, it's going to affect black and brown and, and lady writers more because they're coming into this stuff sometimes with more debt, with less financial security from their families and situations like that. Um, and places like New York and Los Angeles, where a lot of this stuff is happening, those are like expensive places to live. So it was just becoming a situation for them that was untenable unless the industry adapted to the changing landscape of the culture for, for writers, not for themselves. They've already adapted for themselves, but for the writers themselves. So in this deal, if you look at it, there are a couple of things that are, that seem to be at least directly addressed. So they increase the minimums, 5%. Um, some minimums and rates increase less, most about 3% a year. Uh, while a few rates increase only once or do not increase over the contract. These exceptions are a result of patterns established in the industry. So they got a minimums increase. Of course, they got uh, health and pension stuff, increased health and pen pension contributions for writing teams. That stuff is going to be almost in any deal that, that, a, that a union negotiates because the health plan for the WGA and for, the, and, for the, uh, and for SAG is one of the best of any industry out there. And some people say that, other people don't say that. But the WGA health plan is, is really good. Um, and that's a, a very specific thing that stops people from going fucking bankrupt, which is healthcare and all of that. So anytime you have a deal, you're going to have something there. They specifically uh, address artificial intelligence, was a, which was another concern that the writers had, right? Because what yeah. could studios say? Studios could say, fuck you, a robot will write all of this stuff, and then we'll have all our money. Ha, ha, ha. But now... There's been an agreement. AI can't write or rewrite literary material, and AI-generated material will not be considered source material under the NBA, meaning that AI-generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit or separated rights. A writer can choose to use AI when performing writing services. If the company consents and provided that the writer follow applicable company policies, but the company can't require the writer to use AI software when performing writing service. So that seems like a huge one, right? Because it's one yeah. thing to say, hey, I'm going to use a little chat GPT to help me out. I don't know why you would do that. But the company can't say, hey, we want you to write this, just you and chat GPT. We don't need you to hire four other people. You know, would you want chat GPT to do your job, Rachel? How would chat no, GPT No, I would write? not. No, I would not. Yeah, whatever. You look like you kind of chat GPT type type nigga. I've never even um, used it. <laughs> really? Yeah. I've never, I've never used even, it either. But you, I've never even like looked on. Look like but, but you what? Keep going. 
We talking about the writers. <laughs> um, let's okay. Let's come to seven. What about streaming? In, okay, sorry. That's where we are. Increased okay. foreign streaming residuals. Foreign streaming residuals will now be based on the streaming services number of foreign foreign subscribers for services available globally. Because uh, a lot of stuff, uh, when it was foreign, they didn't even get anything. It was very, very small. Uh, amounting to a 76% increase. Wow. Including a 2.5% base increase to foreign residual for the services with the largest global subscribers over the three years. So they're, they're basing this on subscriber data, but the residuals are higher for existence. For instance, Netflix three-year foreign residual will increase from the current six for a one-hour episode to 32.8 for a one-hour episode. That is a massive increase. Mm -hmm. There's a viewership-based streaming bonus. Huge! The Guild negotiated a new residual based on viewership. It's made for HBS VOD series and films that are viewed by 20% or more of the service's domestic subscribers in the nine in the first 90 days of release. On the first 90 days of any subsequent exhibition year, you get a bonus equal to 50% of the domestic and foreign residual, with views calculated as hours streamed domestically of the season of film divided by runtime. Gigantic. It's a huge bonus based upon how much people are watching the goddamn. Show for exist mm -hmm. for instance, projects written under the new NBA on the largest streaming services would receive a bonus of nine thousand dollars for a half hour episode, sixteen four for a one hour episode, and forty five for forty thousand five hundred bucks for a streaming feature over thirty million dollars in budget. This bonus structure will take effect for projects released on or after January first, twenty twenty four. So. Everything in the past, you guys are fucked, but moving forward, it's fine. Now, that makes a lot of sense, and that's cool, right? But then you have a lot of people out there listening might say, well, how does that make a difference if the streamers don't have to share their streaming data with the guild? Aha! Mm -hmm. The companies agreed to provide the guild Subject to a confidentiality agreement, that means the guild can't share that information. I don't know why I'm explaining a fucking confidentiality agreement to our brilliant <laughs> listeners. Um, subject to a confidentiality agreement, the total number of hours streamed both domestically and internationally of self-produced high-budget streaming programs, basically a Netflix original. The guild may share this information with the membership in an aggregated form. That is fucking gigantic. Gigantic. Yeah, I didn't think they would bend on that. I didn't think they would either because that essentially makes the streamers into traditional studios in terms mm -hmm. of the way they share their information. Now, I'm sure it's not all the information, but the we're not going to get it. We're not going to be able to know, which would be nice, but the companies, us in the media, but the companies are, excuse me, the guild is going to know how much this stuff is getting streamed the data transparency, and what they are owed. How can you ask for money if you don't know how much money to ask for? All right? So it's cool. And there's one other thing that I think uh, is, is, is cool. I mean, they got weekly pay increases 
for 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 the staff. They got writer producer weekly race. All the the the, the weeklies went up. But then we talked about the culture of um, writers getting the 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 experience that they need, and that's addressed here too. There's a lot of other great stuff in here, but that's addressed here too. There's a showrunner training program. They reached an agreement to renew $250,000 in annual funding for the showrunner uh, training program. Additional arbitrators are going to be involved to hear NBA claims in Los Angeles. They have, uh, they changed the structure of the writer's rooms. Um, they, we agreed to increase episodes on a new made for broadcast series that can get a single free pro- promotional run from two to three, but with the number of episodes capped at no more than 25% of the season. I mean, look, here's the deal. This is a, a clear win for writers. They yeah. got development rooms. Once three writers are convened before a series order, at least three writer producers are guaranteed 10 weeks of consecutive employment. So the staffing and the duration present, uh, provisions for episodic series, what we talked about, they kind of moved those up. You get 10 weeks of employment, 10 weeks. Development rooms are writers. Uh, development rooms where writers are, are guaranteed 20 weeks of work or more are treated as post-greenlight work. For these rooms on the first season, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. So all of this stuff that we talked about in the little preamble here, they were able to get it done in the deal. Yeah. They really won big here. Well, we talk a lot about how, you know, this, the, what the writers did and coming together and the sacrifice that they made. Obviously, you know, like you said, we have friends that were suffering uh, by what was happening with the strike, but it was all for the, for a, the bigger issue, which was to get these things. And the reason that they were able to get these things, the other side of it, is that their pockets weren't the only ones that were hurting. The studios were losing money like crazy. And the way to get big business attention is to hurt them in their pockets. And that's exactly what was doing. I mean, the fact that when you're reading the background about how this all kind of came together, all these big heads at the big heads, all these people who were running these studios came together and for hours and hours and hours hashed this out to the point where they pretty much were bending the knee to the writers. I do want to say this. Um, One, of course, everybody's asking, so what does this mean now with SAG? Because they're still on strike. A lot of the things that we thought that they wouldn't come to the table with, they did and, and agree to, they did with the writers. And I think that you could probably look at a lot of this as a template of what SAG will ask for. Um, and then other things that obviously address their needs in regards to negotiating um, with um, the studios. And they just sent out, so like since this came out, one, they sent out an email a couple of days ago that was like, we have not started talks. And then I just saw they sent out another email that said they're supposed to go back to the table and have talks October 2nd. So it hmm. seems like this is moving along. I did listen to something that said, you know, even though they did agree to all these terms, it doesn't necessarily mean that the budgets that studios have will change. And if that's the case, if they say we're not going to increase our budget, we're giving you all these things and we'll pay you more, but we keep our budget the same. That means that there will be less shows because if you're paying more, you can't have as many shows if your budget is staying the same. So it could be that you know, you said, oh, there used to be 80 shows and now there's 500 shows. We might not have 500 shows anymore because in order to compensate the writers, 
um, and meet these demands that they've that they've agreed to, they've got the pie is the same. So that means that there are less shows. And then also I read that it might mean that as viewers, we pay more for these streaming services. So I'm not saying that that's a problem. I'm supporting the writers. I'm just saying that could be yeah. something that comes. We pay more, which is interesting because the whole thing with streaming when it first came out was that it's cheaper than cable. It's cheaper than cable and you're getting all of this. And we're kind of working our way right back to paying as much as we were for cable with all these streaming services as the prices for them continue to go up. We're already there. You think so? Well, I don't know if everybody's like you and me, where we have every single streaming service out there. Well, what I'm saying, what, <laughs> what I'm saying is that is like, uh, you know, I could compare this to one of my old habits, but I won't. Thank God. And my God, how many services were you signed up for with that? A lot. More than five. Oh my God. The fact that you even think it's free. Yeah. How are you how are like you can find it for free? How are you subscribing to more than five? Wild. You don't even have to tell on yourself. Keep going. But it's but it's but it's not free if you want it in the highest quality. Ah, keep going. Keep, and I if mean, you don't want to be bothered, if you don't want to be bothered with ads and all of that stuff, if it's not free, if you want it in the highest quality, if you Jeez. want it in the highest quality. Because they'll say, you know, you'll see, and you'll be like, oh, only 15 bucks a month. And you'll be like, okay, I can spare that. $15 a month? Yeah. You have to have been putting in hours on hours on hours to justify that cost. What you say is, that's just not a lot of money. And then before you know it, you got six, seven of them mugs. Anyway. Um, but and that's I'm the so same happy thing with, you're on the other side of it. I'm so proud of you. I got out of it. I stopped. But like, it, but here's the thing. Um, when you're looking at the streaming services, it's the same thing that they that they started to do was they started to IP rail you, which is like you know, obviously you know. Like for me, it's not really about the streaming service itself; it's about the specific show. So the question is, if you don't fucking have Paramount Plus, and you just want to try to watch Halo. You maybe don't want to watch Halo, all right, or other shows on Paramount Plus. Like, for example, we started watching Special Ops Lioness, okay, which is a great show. <laughs> it was really good. We started watching Special Ops Lioness. Now, people were telling me how good Special Ops Lioness was, right? It's a good show. Um, and we didn't remember whether or not we had Paramount Plus. Yeah, we had no sucks. clue whether or not we had it. <laughs> we, did, like, we didn't know whether or not we had it. It, we actually were paying for the service, but it wasn't downloaded. So we downloaded it. So we have this. And so we could watch it. But if you don't have it, you can't watch the show, right? If, if you don't have Disney Plus, no Marvel, no motherfucking um, uh, uh, Star Wars. If you don't have HBO, then no Sopranos spinoffs. No, all the, it's not actually the service that you're tied to. It's the IP that the service owns. So they're essentially getting you to buy all of these things specifically by show, which is not too much different than the subscriber model that pay channels have. Like you had HBO if you want to watch Sopranos or maybe you got Showtime if you wanted to watch, I don't know, Brotherhood or, or Weeds or Californication. But it's different now because it's 
so specific. All of these things, Apple, the morning show, all of this stuff. So if you want to watch this stuff, you're not just flipping from channel to channel to see it. You're going from service to service to see it. And the more shows there are that you might be interested in, the more decisions you have to make about what it is you're buying and what it is that you're not buying. Then on top of that, if you want to cut the cord, you need a service that you can watch TV on if you want to watch sports. And then that's YouTube TV. And then you pay for your internet, you're paying for YouTube TV. That's like 70 bucks. And so it's, when you look at it, you're right back where you first, started. You were, you were saving a little <laughs> bit, but now you might be paying more, right? And now, you know, we're in the entertainment industry. We can write a lot of this stuff off, but most people can't. So there's some decisions that have to be made. Right. Um, as far as there being less shows, uh, it was always going to be that way. It was going to be that way no matter what, because in an imperiled economy, a lot of these streamers were just going to put out less stuff. They were They were going to put out less stuff they were going to pull back a little bit. Some of these shows, they spent unbelievable amounts of money on and they fucking bricked. And so when that starts happening a couple of times, like people get a little bit more bashful about how they're putting their bread out there. So, you know, the most important thing is, is, is that, you know, th- these writers and these creators have security. And I believe if they have security and they have investment. I think the amount of good shows that you'll get will always outweigh the bad ones because these are very, very talented people that we're dealing with. So kudos to them. Um, look, God damn it. Uh, Usher's doing the Super Bowl. Your thoughts? I don't really have a lot of thoughts on that. I, I, that's, um, you know, when they were throwing around names of people doing the Super Bowl, I feel like Usher wasn't on the list. And then all of a sudden we get this commercial with Kim K., um, you know, reenacting the confessions video and announcing that Usher's doing the Super Bowl. I, I'm excited for it. I think Usher's a great performer. And for all the people who haven't been able to make it out to his Vegas show, although it'll be less tame, tamed on the Super Bowl stage, I think it'll be great. It'll be a fantastic performance. Your thoughts? Actually, let's not do that. That's all yeah, now. There's not a lot of, to talk about with that. Let me see. Hold on. What else we got here? You have Kaepernick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Cap. Um, all right. To the world of sports, someone I know you love. You have a soft spot in your heart, heart for. Don't play into uh, this narrative. I'm not playing I into do, it. I'm not I do have it. a soft spot in my heart for. That is true. Uh, Colin Kaepernick wrote a letter to the New York Jets. It's posted on J. Cole's social. Uh, in case you guys aren't keeping up with the foosball this year, the New York Jets. Goddamn. In the offseason, they traded for Aaron Rodgers. And they built what a lot of people thought was a Super Bowl-quality roster around Aaron Rodgers. And then five plays into the NFL season, Aaron Rodgers snapped his fucking Achilles. Popped it like some ass. And, and now the Jets are left with a roster that's seemingly, that seemingly capable. Defense and different players on offense making a deep run in the playoffs, but they don't have a, a trigger man, a QB. Zach Wilson, God bless him. God bless his family. God bless everyone who loves him. But that nigga can't play no football. And if he can in the future one day, that would be very great. But as of now, Zach is whack. <laughs> Leaves him with a big hole at quarterback. Colin Kaepernick thinks he can fill it. Uh, J. Cole posted a letter on Instagram. That's what Cap said. I would be honored and extremely grateful for the opportunity to come in and lead the practice squad. 
happening room. I would do this with the sole mission of getting your defense ready each week. Kaepernick wrote that he would approach the job with the dedication and passion as if it were the number one QB position. Okay. He also said during this that he would, uh, he would be willing to step in if Zach Wilson couldn't find it. But at the same time, his job is not to come, come in there and take anything away from the starting quarterback, but to provide the team with some depth, some answers, which they don't have. They just signed Trevor Simeon, uh, 31-year-old Trevor Simeon, um, and help them get ready. And he's willing to do this for the New York Jets who have a problem at quarterback. Rachel is shaking her head. Your thoughts? I wish they wouldn't have shared the letter. I really do. I understand the intention behind it, and I understand what J. Cole, you know, wanted everybody to see. And we see it. And I don't even think that I needed to see a letter to see that or understand that it's not fair that Colin Kaepernick is not in the league. I wholeheartedly believe that. I've believed it for years since he was booted out for the wrong reasons. I read the letter. I read it multiple times. It's incredibly sad. It made me so sad for him. And the saddest part was what you just said to me about I'll even do lead your practice squad. There was desperation in that paragraph. And that made me so sad for him. But, and I think he deserves to be in the league. And I'm saying all of this, right? But when I read the letter and I look at the number of years that he has been, you know, like, kept his body physically and mentally ready for someone to pick up the phone, call him and say, hey, we want you to be a part of our team. I admire that. I can't even imagine what it is to do that year upon year upon year when all the odds are stacked against you. It says a lot about a person's character. But I'm also stand by all the things that I've said before. And I think that's what made it so sad to read this. They're not going to let him back in the league at this point as even though he is so deserving of it. I have to keep saying that because I know you you know, like to play that I don't think that. He's so mm-hmm. deserving of it. They're not going to let him back in. If you do have such a love for football, which I obviously he does, there are other, you should be in the NFL, but there are other ways that you can play football. And if the, the goal is to play the sport that you love so much, and I know you want to play it on the highest level, if that door is closed, and it is, then he should play, he should pursue a, another avenue. And, I, and I, that's what I really believe. But I, mm-hmm. this, this, this letter broke my heart. I thought it was so sad. So... Obviously, people know that Colin Kaepernick and Nessa, Nessa and Cap, Cap and Nessa, Cap and Nessa are friends of mine. So obviously here, there is some bias and feelings that I deal with when it comes to this issue. There's people who I know, people who I talk to, people who I see um, deal with this injustice and deal with really all the pressure that's happened that's that's been thrust upon them should i say 
since Cap decided to kneel. And you know, I've been knowing him for years now. This is what I'll say. I've heard everybody talk about it, and I've heard everyone give their various opinions about whether or not it's possible that Colin Kaepernick will ever play NFL football again. I've heard everyone talk about how the letter makes them feel. Everyone say, oh, most people say sad. Most people say the letter is sad. Um, I don't have as many feelings about the letter itself. Uh, those are, are some sentiments that I already knew as I do about the way we reacted to it. The way we're, we're all, we're all, the way we've reacted to it. We're all, we're all familiar with black magic. It's the, the, the magic that's like, you know, evil and you use it to fucking uh, put a hex on people, curse on people, black magic. Uh, but we don't ever talk about white magic, specifically as it's used in America, white magic. I'm going to tell you what white magic is. White magic is using prestidigitation to make you look at everything other than the actual issue. Right? So, give you an example of white magic. It's like, I'm going to show you this, and then I'm going to do this. White magic is when a young Black person is killed by the police. White magic is going to their social media, showing them in a hoodie or with gold teeth, or talking about the time that they were 14 or 15 years old. They they either got caught with a little bit of weed, or uh, they got kicked out of school, if that even exists. That's white magic. White magic is saying, hey, this is the thing that you guys should be talking about or want to talk about, but voila, we are going to give you something else to talk about. We're going to give you something else. We're going to present you with something. And now, this is the thing, right? Flip it on you. Bernie Max or like John Witherspoon. Flip it on you. Flip it on you, right? Misdirection. There is no situation where that's worth as much as it's worth with Colin Kaepernick. No situation. Um... The root of what we're talking about with Colin Kaepernick is a, a power base in the NFL that decided that one nigga was too was making too many problems for them. And so they just took his livelihood away. That's, That's what we're said. talking about. Now we can discuss, we can discuss here anything else besides that. We can talk about anything else besides that. We can talk about the settlement, right? We can talk about uh what should have happened at a tryout. We can talk about all the mistakes that we feel like Colin Kaepernick has made. We can discuss those things. And some people can say some of them are mistakes. Some people can say some of them are things that he shouldn't have done. Like, would you participate in a workout where the waiver had legal language inside of it that uh, exposed you or not exposed you um, or stopped you, precluded you from being able to sue the NFL again? Would you, like participate in a workout where the waiver was non-standard and protected the NFL more than it protected you. Would you do that? Some people might say, hey, if you want to play in the NFL, fucking go do the, the trial. Some people would say, well, I shouldn't have to do the thing that I want to do in the wrong way if I want to do the thing that I want to do, right? Okay. But all of the stuff that we're doing right now, 
is asking him to pass a purity test to get over the injustice that was done to him. And I'm letting people know that they do that all the time. They do that in every single way. They always say that if you act better, if you do it this way, then we won't take your rights away. And they always make it your fault. They make it your fault. They say, this is what you should have done in order for you to be treated equally or fairly. And every time they do it, there's a part of us that fall for it. Every single time. Now, whether or not Colin Kaepernick plays in the NFL again, it's not a big issue to people. That's the deal. People don't care anymore. They don't give a shit whether or not he gets the opportunity to run back on the field. The reason why it matters to me is because talking about somebody that challenged the status quo and then had their ass kicked for it to where everything was taken from them is supposed to be something that we left in the past. That's supposed to be the story of Kurt Flood, who was what was the story of Kurt Flood, who was, you know, a guy who challenged free agency and then didn't really get a chance to play out his career in the way that it was. It's supposed to be the, all these other people who were, you know, trailblazers back in the day that took all these things in there so that other people can come in there and, and do stuff in a more enlightened time where they can't just fucking do this to you in front of everybody. But the same game always works. And now it's Colin Kaepernick who's sad. Now it's the letter who is sad. It's not 32 NFL owners who are sad, who are still doing the same things that they're doing, exactly. who are being sued right now, who are, who are being sued right now by Brian Flores, who just recently settled with uh, a contingent of black players from the NFL who were being judged for their cognitive abilities differently because they are black, entrenched racism in the league that we all watch that everybody watches and really wants to feel good about watching, which is why they don't uh, in any way want to stand in the in, in the way of the league so that we feel better about watching football and watching Usher and watching all of this stuff. That's really what this is about. And that we would say, hey, he didn't do this the right way. As if doing it the right way has ever worked for us. As if doing it the right way has ever made power in America, say, you know what, you're all right. That's cool. And it's just, it's, it's, it blows my mind. It, and I'm, I'm really not, it, it, it does. It blows my mind. It blows my mind that after every single example of the white magic that gets pulled on us, after every single example, we still do the same thing. We still do. It's not it's not about to me about what he hasn't done. It's not about to me about what he has done. It's about what they've done. They did the wrong thing. So if they did the wrong thing, why are we bringing it back to Colin Kaepernick? We're not like why? Nothing. But, that we I, are. but nothing but I it, said but, to you. But even, but even when you said, to, but, but even when you even when you just said, that's why you took the settlement. It's like, no, that's not, I'm not, I'm not. So like that, me saying that's why he took the settlement was literally a response to you saying that they colluded. And I'm saying, I said, that's why he settled. Not he took the settlement. That's why that there is a settlement because there was collusion. It proved it. 
I'm not, nothing that I said when you asked me about the letter was blaming Colin Kaepernick. I didn't blame him on anything. I said it was sad. And I said that there was a desperate, you can tell there's a desperation of how much he wants to be back in the league. The thing is, they colluded against him, which is why there was a settlement or it was going to go to arbitration or trial because there is a fact that there was collusion. What's happening now to keep him out of the league is collusion as well. They haven't stopped. There, you, there's a Clearly, there's an agreement to, for no team to let him back into this league. Nobody wants to see him back in. But I think this is where, as you stated, the first thing you talked about is you're friends with them and there's a bias there. Everything that you said is absolutely true. And people like me who say the things that they do, it's not that we don't see this white magic. Obviously, there's collusion. We talk about the issues in the NFL all the time. We talk about the systemic racism. We talk about the way that they treat Black players and specifically the injustices that have been done to Colin Kaepernick. Just because we say the letter's sad and we say they're clearly never going to let him back in and he clearly wants to play this game that he loves so much doesn't mean that we don't see how problematic the NFL is. So why it would you say it? So, Why would I so, say this this, so, this, so this is my point. I, 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 I receive everything you're saying, right? But it's kind of like saying, like saying, okay, uh, and I don't want to compare an issue of one man to an issue of a whole group of people, but I, I am. It's kind of like saying, all right, he's never going to get to play in the NFL again. He should just go play in, in a different league, right? Like, we should all do that then. We should all stop trying. Like, whatever injustice is facing you, right, be it the pay gap, be it patriarchy, be it whatever, you're never going to change it. So you should all just settle for whatever whatever is available to you. It just, it, it, in, in the ethos of it, in the spirit of it. I don't think it's that it, black and white. Well, it, well, well, I don't I mean, think that's an well, apples to your, apples thing. I just don't. Well, well the, those are your, wait, well, I do. I think that because I think what's good, once again, the way I look at society, right? is I look at the justice for people, but I also look at the justice for person. You can't have justice for people if you're willing to forego justice for person, right? The, the reason why Mike Brown matters and the reason why all of these people, that all of this started over, the reason why all of those people matter is because they are all of us and could be any of us. And if you are in a workplace and you are being treated unfairly by your bosses because you decide to exercise your First Amendment right, right? In a sport or an industry that relies on the goodwill of people to function. Remember, we're not making rubber here. We're not making cars. The NFL is a gigantic popularity contest. The popularity is based on the competition of the people and the performance of the athletes, but it's a popularity contest nonetheless. If people don't like, they don't watch. It's not keeping the water on. It's not keeping the lights on. It's not an industry that's based around that. It's an industry that's based around how much you like it. So in an industry that's based upon that, for, for them to be able to do this openly and brazenly, and for us to just be like, uh, nah, he should accept that, it's completely giving them carte blanche to do this in perpetuity, which, to be honest with you, they already have. There but but I don't understand why we're so okay with that. Okay with it to the point 
that we would make it the problem of the person. Nobody's making been... it the problem of Colin Kaepernick. Or I'm not they making are. I'm not making it the problem. I don't feel like what I anything that I've said has made it the problem of Colin Kaepernick. And it's not that people and it's not that people are saying, don't keep fighting, right? Like fighting against what the bigger issue is. People might be saying, like me, they're not gonna let you in the league. And I felt like when I see a letter like this, it almost feels like you're begging to be a part of it. Nobody's saying that Colin Kaepernick or people who have faced injustices from the NFL should not call it out and not fight against it. That would be the bigger issue. I mean, or that would be a bigger problem. People are calling out things that are done in the NFL. When, when Kaepernick got the settlement, he didn't stop there. And people encouraged him. He did the the special on Netflix. He did, you know, media. He started an organization. He's done things to fight against the injustices that the NFL has placed on Black people or to call them out. Nobody has asked him to stop because he got a settlement. What they're saying is, or what I felt when I read a letter like this is, it almost becomes like you're begging. You can still fight against the powers that be or the organization that colluded against you or continue to call it out, but it doesn't have to be in this way. You can use your First Amendment rights to do that without writing a letter begging to still be a part of the league. That's just I, I, like nobody's asking him to stop but, the fight. But 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 to me, I personally think, and I, we can't. You know, I personally think that the real reason why he had that to write that letter, the real reason why that is because he has absolutely zero solidarity from the people that should be supporting him. It's and like the real people? reason why it's black people. The real reason why it's come to this. The real reason why, if anyone's wondering why. That there's a lot of people working behind the scenes to to help him do this. The real reason why it's come to this is for the same reason that it comes to all of this. It's just like there's no solidarity with people that should be supporting him. What he's should we be doing? Alone. What should we and be doing? He, he's got to go. Well, well, number the first thing we should be doing, in my opinion, and I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything specifically. People move on with their lives. It happens. It happens. Whatever. But the first thing we should be doing is just not undermining it. And I feel like that's the thing. I think. I think the thing is the the easy thing, and this was shepherded by Jay Z and by Rock Nation, is we gave ourselves permission to move on, because and that's fine. We gave ourselves permission to move on, and we started making all of these excuses as to why that is. Oh, he didn't do this this way. He didn't do that this way. He didn't do this this way. He didn't do that this way, and we never ever came back and said that what the NFL did wasn't wrong. If what the NFL did is wrong, like just the way that I look at it is if the center of this is rotten, if what they did is wrong, then why are we bending over backwards to excuse them for their behavior? And I know that you say that you're not doing that, but that is what people do. I mean, that is what people do in this situation. What people do is they say, I'm not, and I, I misunderstood what you said earlier about the settlement, granted, but people say, oh, well, he took a settlement. Well, he didn't do this this way. Well, he do that. It, it may very well be the case that after that trial went bad, that it wasn't going to work out for Colin Kaepernick. It may very well be the case. But talking about the this issue, like it's this intractable fact of the world that he'll never play in the NFL again, and he should just pack it up and go do something else. I just want people to know that you get told that all the time and you get told that about so many different things. When we talked to Larry Elder, Larry Elder said straight up, 
Like black people will never catch up to white people. They say he'll we'll never catch up. White people are not standing still. It's like we'll, we'll never catch up. So why are we why why are we even concerned about that? Well, the reason why we're concerned about it is because it's fucked up that we're so behind. And the reality is that we might never catch up is less important, less important than the reality that A, we shouldn't be this far behind, and it was intentionally done that we're this far behind, and B, that we want to catch up. So why would we stop trying to catch up? Why would we ever, like, in any way say, hey, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have, uh, whites white shouldn't have 10 times more wealth than us. Like, why would we ever be okay with that? Like, do, does it matter why it happened and what the realities are? Like, why would that, and so I'm, while I'm watching him, I'm like, oh, okay, so he's like, oh, so individuals can, help. but nah, dog, if the reparations came through, we could fix the wealth gap. $14 trillion. Sandy Darity has it there. If, if you ever did, like, we could fix the wealth gap. That's not going to happen. That's fine. We're not going to stop talking about it, though. Exactly. Shit, will... You're not going to start, t- stop talking about it. You're not going to stop exercising your First Amendment rights to call out the problem. Exactly. Right. And to me, your First Amendment right also means, or your rights as a person that's had something taken from you, you know, writing a letter might seem sad to a lot of people. I personally think that it's somebody who's showing people how much it means to him and his family, wife, new baby, his family, to not lose this. We don't think about it in terms of winning. We think about it in terms of, oh, look how pathetic he wants. Like, Colin Kaepernick is actually saying, I don't want to be a martyr. He said, I don't want to be a martyr for this. I want my life back. And we, we just, he's just not getting the support. But it'll happen again. It'll never stop happening. Because at the end of the day, it falls at our feet. It'll never stop happening. This, how about this? If, if we're all saying Colin Kaepernick will never be back in the NFL, cool. And you know what? We'll never stop getting fucked over. We'll never stop getting fucked over. And we'll always make it our fault. White magic. Um, we'll always agree right. to disagree. <laughs> we will. That's fair. Oh, by the way, it's not just you that I really disagree with. Nobody really agrees with this. Y'all, y'all niggas like football too much. You like Michael Parsons? You tweeted Michael last, Parsons, you, you tweet, oh, you were tweeting all Sunday about the NFL. Michael Parsons, <laughs> Michael Parsons wasn't on the Cowboys. You support Cap. Look, here's the deal. My thing is this. <laughs> you watched the NFL. Michael you're Parsons part of the, wasn't on the Cowboys. According to your Cowboys argument, you're part of the problem. The game to the Arizona Cardinals. It, I'm definitely, we're all part of the problem. But what I'm saying is I'm not going to, I'm not going to be doubly part. I'm not going to, one, I'm willing to look at it and say, hey, we're all fucked up, but this is what should be happening. I don't, what I don't do is the cognitive dissonance and wanting to blame the victim in this I situation. I've never blamed Cap. <laughs> I've never blamed him. But, but I know have, that's how, you you, that's how you and them probably see it, but I've never blamed him. Oh, they're not fucking with you. I'm I'm, I'm good. I, I, but I'm good. See, I know. I see. I know. See, there it is. Because there if, it because is. if you you're not because if you're that. not fucking with me, you're obviously not listening to how I do talk about. You didn't listen to my whole speech before, but it's okay. People hear what they want to hear. It's true. It's true. They will. Uh, oh, they gonna they gonna they gonna Photoshop some pictures with you next to the judge appointed by Bill Clinton. Um. <laughs> um. 
Donnie, real quick, uh, before we get to mailbag, play that Tim Scott audio about slavery real quick, just so we can get back to it. We are the greatest nation on earth because we faced our demons in the mirror and made a decision. So often we think that all the issues, you talked about crime and education and health care, we always think that those issues go back to slavery. Here's the challenge, though. Black families survive slavery. We survive poll taxes and literacy tests. We survive discrimination being woven into the laws of our country. What was hard to survive was Johnson's Great Society, where they decided to put money, where they decided to take the black father out of the household to get a check in the mail. And you can now measure that in unemployment, in crime, in devastation. If you want to restore hope, you've got to restore the family, restore capitalism, and put Americans back at work together as one American family. Our nation continues to go in the right direction. It's why I can say I have been discriminated against, but America is not a racist country. Never, ever doubt who we are. We are the greatest country on God's green earth. And frankly, the city on the hill needs a brand new leader. I'm asking for your vote. Oh, oh boy. He was filling filling himself with the clubs. Tim thought he was... Bitten. Tim thought he was. Sp- I could feel it. Can't you feel when someone Tim feel thought it? he was spit? Can't yeah, you exactly. feel it? Jermaine Jackson. <laughs> Tim is Jermaine Jackson. Uh, Tim thought he was spitting. He was really spitting on the white man's dick to move it up. <laughs> We've all been there that one spit. And you're like, oh, it's about to go down. That's what Tim was doing. Spitting on a white man's dick. That's what he was spitting. Tim, get the fuck out of here. Look, um, it, 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 uh, it, so you think slavery was worse than uh, Johnson's Great Society? What was, be- what was worse, Rachel? Slavery or, or, or welfare? I think, Van, I'm going to go with slavery on this one. To use the words of old Timmy, there's no redeeming quality in slavery. Hmm. Yeah. Um, once again, the analysis of the loss of wealth for Black people and the systemic issues that Black people face uh, is woefully, woefully inadequate from a Black Republican. Um, it is quaint and uh, just intellectually dishonest to blame the situation of Black Americans on Johnson's Great Society. I'll tell you a couple other things about Johnson's Great Society. Which I'm not. I'm not a gigantic fan of uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, but you know, a lot of shock, a lot of shit got done. If we're being honest, the Voting Rights Act, uh, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act. There are a lot of things that happened, spearheaded by some of the greatest minds in Black America uh, during that time. Um, uh, now, if we're if we're looking at economic issues that you know were huge in American cities, that you know led to some urban decay. There's such, such, such a complex pot to pull from, man. There's so many things that went on. Industry left, globalism, all of that stuff. We were talking to Larry Elder. Larry Elder didn't want to talk about mortgage-backed securities and all of the stuff that actually led up to the financial crisis and all of this stuff. It's just it's just the fact that, you know, Johnson gave us welfare and the niggas decided they didn't want to be families anymore. It's just so convenient for the white power system 
I'm watching Tim Scott stand there, and I'm thinking to myself, my God, my brother, how? How? Well, what, does how? Say, what does that say about his mother? Are his you mother? saying? Well, Tim Scott grew up. He always God, tells us. Well, no. Tim Scott always tells us how he grew up um, no, with a single Black mother. So are mm-hmm. you saying that your mother was accepting the checks and did not want a nuclear family unit? I know that's not true. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't like, are, are you saying that she would rather not have a man in the household that time? It's, it, it's reported that, I don't know the exact thing, his father left when he was still like seven years old and his mom raised them as a single mother. Did she just want to accept the check and be married to the government and not have a man in the household? I'm sure that's not the case. That's not the um, case. I never do this. I never do this, but I actually think his father left because of Tim. I did not know that's what you were going to say. We need to... I think his, oh, because I think, Tim was spitting like that back, back when yeah, he was seven? I think, I think his father was in there chilling. I'm saying trying to watch good times or something like that. And Tim came in and started talking about Richard Nixon. And his dad was like, I can't fuck with this little nigga. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like his dad was like, his dad, Tim came in. It's like, dad, 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 did you see Nixon opened up China? And he's like, I'm done. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. His pop's somewhere right now with a whole family. They probably uh, they probably looking for a side of secure. His dad's probably you know he, he got radicalized by Tim. Um, <laughs> so joke, guys. Fathers leaving homes is not very funny. But I could just see Tim coming in there. Dad, dad, dad. Nah, nigga, I'm out. I'm gone. It's over. Um, no, it's wrong. It's terrible. Uh, look, I, I, I happen to not believe that. I know that there's some people out there uh, once again that always want to believe the worst about black people and have not done the requisite work, and there's more work for me to be done. I'm not an academic by any sort. Uh, but if you do, even a baseline analysis of this, you'll find that that talking point is hollow and ridiculous. There are bits and pieces of all kinds of things that lead to where we are right now, none of which can beat the legacy of slavery, white supremacy, and systemic racism. That's just, that dims the facts, people. I'm sorry, it's inconvenient. Dims the facts. Dims the facts. Mailbag. All right. The first question comes from Corey Kober. In the spirit of Larry running for president and trying to get on the debate stage, what's the most energy that you've wasted? Ooh. This is a good question. Most Mm. energy I've wasted. I wasted energy on a girl. I think we can always all say that there's a relationship we wasted energy on. Now, I'm not saying time, because I never got her, but energy. You know, back in back in my less confident days, you know, I would have to be around and I have to play the nice guy game for a little while to really show my charisma. Not play the game, but I had to show my personality. You know what I mean? Because you got to have personality at 375. So, like, it, you, you know, I have to show my personality and stuff. And it was, you have to put in a lot of work. That Brian t- that Bryson Tiller song, I'd be working overtime. I would put in a lot of work, put in a lot of work, put in a lot of work, put in a lot of work. And one day, and I'm sitting down talking to her, and she shows me a picture of this nigga who just came back from Iraq or something like that. And she's like, he's home, he's home. And I was like, God damn. The IEDs missed. And, and, 
<laughs> okay, maybe that was Donnie. Take that. That was dark. <laughs> I did not even. Man, you have to take. Donnie, please take that out. Yeah, Donnie, that's fine. That <laughs> I was like, did I hear what I thought I heard? <laughs> no, you really she, did he think come, that. He had come home and, you know, you know, and and, uh, and that was it. And, you know, this, uh, thank you for your service. That's all I could say to him. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of wasted energy right there. Say. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot. Def- definitely relationships of the past that um, I wasted energy on. Maybe there was a lot of energy wasted on Baxter Nation. Maybe there was some of that, mm. you know, trying to. <sighs> you You love, we should invite her on the podcast because you love, and you'll see that there's there are no issues there. I mean, no, and tr- truthfully, though, I did waste energy on her because when she did have that video that came out, I spent an entire day talking to her, going back and forth. And I was very nice and lended a hand and said, you know, if you do want to apologize, I'll come on alive with you and we can talk about it. And we and I went was like educating her on what she did and the word. And it was a whole day full of thing only for her to come back and say her PR didn't want her to. Um, to go on with me. They, I guess they didn't trust, you know, that I would uh, be an ally in that situation. And yeah, so they should put out it. a statement. So yes, to your point, that, that that was a whole day of wasting energy. But no, I would say Bastard Nation General, there's some things that I wasted energy on because some things will just never change. Donnie? All right. Truth Ally asks, what is a quality or characteristic that you love about your father? What is a favorite activity you do or used to do? with your father. Yeah, that's going to be a used to do with me. Um, <laughs> come on, you can't laugh about it. Then. Uh, um, favorite activity that I used to do with my dad. Uh, it was, it was, there were activities, of course, like we fished and we hunted, but you had, those were things that like, like, you had a lot of conversation. But me and him would just ride sometimes, man. He'd just be like, I'd be sitting down. He'd be like, uh, oh, boy, let's go. And I'd be like, where are we going? He'd be like, get in the car with your daddy. And, you know, he might go make a couple of pickups uh, in terms of, you know, he had pickup money to, to make the money draw for the people that we was working. Or he might be, I might go with him to look at a horse. Or I might go with him to, um, to to the like the feed store to buy feed for the horses. I mean, it's all these little things that he had to do, go to the gun store. I know that sounds a little weird to some people, but I would just be him and like with him for a while. Uh, he would talk to people. I would see the way he, and he'd always be like, uh, when he was talking to somebody, he'd always like make a whole area for me. They talked to him, shake his hand. They always had such respect for him. And they would be like, this is my son man and then the, the man would shake my hand and he, and then my dad would make him talk to me so that I knew how to deal with like talking to a man like it would be back and forth like yeah van tell him about this and do the whole deal like so he was like grooming me to be able to talk to somebody it was just like all those little areas of life and sometimes we would just ride and talk we would get something to eat and then you know we would go back home and he'd be like all right now get in there and get your lesson so I'd go in there and I'd do my school work but I think those were kind of the things that I remember like the most that were awesome to me. 
Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I, a characteristic, I would say my dad is an assiduous man and I love his perseverance, his work ethic and the pride he takes in, in, in the work that he does. Um, I've always loved that as a, as a little kid, I just remember admiring my dad for that. Uh, as far as favorite activities, it was simple things, very similar to you. I loved going to the rodeo with my dad. I mesquite rodeo. I used to love Saturday nights when we would go to the rodeo. I would love driving to my grandmother's farm to the country and doing work on the farm with my dad. As a kid, I would take so much pride in that. And then even as an adult, you know, my family has a trail ride in Louisiana every single um, year in August. And it got to the point where nobody would go except for me and my dad. And this is like in my thirties and uh, 20, late twenties and thirties. And so I would love just me and my dad getting in the car for hours, driving to Louisiana. The two of us would hit up the trail ride and we would just drive back. And some of those conversations still stay with me where, you know, like, I feel like I got to see my dad open up to me because he's a very private person and he doesn't say a lot, but he would ask me certain questions, personal questions. And I felt like we didn't necessarily have that relationship growing up, but as an adult, um, we do. So those moments. Hmm. Yeah. One more, Donnie. All right. This last one. Uh, let's go. With, okay. We got two different ones. There's a longer one or a shorter one. Which should I go with? As a, as a long okay. one. Okay. From Smooth. Van and Rachel, smooth. smooth with three U's. Van and Rachel, both of you were very blessed to have your fathers in your lives. And I'm sure their presence and guidance has contributed, at least in part, to your prosperity today. In all seriousness, what is your take on fatherlessness in the Black community? Do you feel it's a legitimate issue or that its negative impact on the Black community is largely overblown? I know for me personally, as a Black man in his late 20s, I've started to come to terms with exactly how greatly my father's absence has impacted me and how difficult it can be to learn to become a man on your own. Um, I mean, I don't think that either one of us would deny, you know, the importance of having an involved father in your life. I think that um, the topic of fatherlessness and when they throw out statistics, I think that they conflate like marriage statistics with fatherlessness. And I think that they take away from the fact that there are people, fathers that maybe, you know, don't live in the home anymore, but are involved. Fathers that have gone on, there's divorce and have married someone else. So they might be a father in one household, but, but you know, the child splits, um, you know, where they live. And, you know, like maybe the, the primary address is the mother's, but the father's still involved because he's, you know, like lives somewhere else. I just think that there's a, statistically, there are a lot of issues that contribute to maybe a high percentage of what people are calling fatherlessness, which actually isn't the case. So I think that there are a lot of involved Black fathers. And so I think that that is something that is overblown sometimes and not taken into consideration with, involved fathers. Fatherlessness doesn't mean that the father isn't involved or sometimes that's, I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Wait, take that part out, Donnie. I just think that when people say fatherlessness, they're looking at a, a statistic that doesn't include everything. And there are a lot of involved black fathers. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, I think that we can both have a conversation about fatherlessness and have a conversation about the realities of it. 
uh, and have a conversation about narratives that are pushed on a particular community to affect somebody else um, or give them a talking point for their own personal political gain. Uh, so we can talk about all of that stuff, right, in a very holistic way. I look at the family differently. I'm not a huge believer of the nuclear family. Uh, I think it's really a, <laughs> a Western invention to prop up capitalism. So little kingdom that leads to a bigger 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 kingdom. As a man, I think that I'm responsible, obviously, for my family. For for the for the people around me, but I also think that we have a collective responsibility for the young men in our in our communities and for their well being. It's one thing to raise your own family and raise your children in an incredibly responsible way, but if you do not care about the children next door, the children across the street, and the children across town, then the realities of those children's lives will still affect your children's realities anyway. I think that when Black Lives Matter was talking about how they rejected the nuclear family. I think a lot of people misunderstood what they were saying and misunderstood uh, and didn't read what came next. What they talked about was something that's more traditional to the Black experience, to the African experience, if you will, which is a bunch of people taking responsibility for the children in their community. They say very specifically in their mission statement, hey, we are all raising each other's kids together so that if you need to go protest or go to work or go do something, your kids have a place at my home and vice versa. What I believe is that now for this young man that wrote in is that even though your dad wasn't around, there should have been someone. There should have been someone there to help you become a man. If somebody saw that you needed something, someone should have cared enough about the collective strength and health of the community that they, that you came from to give you something. And that's what I believe in more than anything. I believe in males, black men being there for black boys. And this is happening, but you have to do the work to know. Next, for, next week, I will be in Detroit at the opening of the union in Detroit. The union is the building that has been finally been procured by Jason Wilson from the Cave of Adult. And what Jason does, Jason has his own family, right? It's a beautiful family. Actually, they're very beautiful family. It's weird how good looking these people are. Um, and he has an institute, a place for boys to come where they can get the male role models and the male leadership that they need. Some men bring their sons there to get a different style of male leadership, male role models, safety, people to help you in a place like Detroit where it's all hands on deck for our boys. So for me, yeah, yeah, there's a need for us to have a conversation about how we're showing up for Black boys and, um, and our Black girls in these neighborhoods. There's definitely a need to have that conversation. But there's also a need to have a conversation of what, what our responsibilities are outside of the young men that we created through our bodies. And if we really, really, really are dedicated to that, then everybody will have a father. Everybody will have somebody that they can look up to. Everybody will have somebody that they can lean on because all of those young men in those, in, in those communities are your responsibility 
because their pain will be revisited on you anyway. So you might as well do what you can to make sure that they feel safe, seen, heard, and fed. Because they're coming in, they, it's, it's coming back to you anyway. So building healthy communities means building healthy people. And that's what I would say. And um, by the way, what? Uh, I, I, what? Oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's, that's it. By the way, my, my father believed in that too. What? What about young girls? I mean, for me, it's, I mean, I don't know how to, to teach a girl how to be a woman. And right, he, and, but and, the and, importance and, of having like, you know, like the, there's, there's the daddy's girl thing is, is very real. And, you know, like I'm very close to my dad and I can't imagine having, not having that, a figure like that, right? Maybe if it, the same way you're talking about this community that needs to be involved with, if you see a young, a young boy, a young man who doesn't have that type of figure in his life where the community comes together. I, I equally think that there is that importance though. I know you say you don't believe in the nuclear family and I understand everything that you said makes sense, but when it comes to young women, the, you can't take away the fact that there's an importance about having a male figure, a positive male figure in their life as well. So I'm just yeah, like wondering. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. Like, what happens I just, to the young uh, girl and all of that? Yeah, I don't have a problem with that at all. I do. I mean, I don't think that I would see a young girl that needed me and not be there for her either. I do think there is a specific need in addressing this question. There's a specific need for, this is what I'll say. I'll just be honest. The amount of damage that an ill-raised man can do is just astronomical. The amount of power that men wield in society, the amount of, 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 uh, of privilege that men have in society uh, it's significant. And ill-raised boys, ill-adjusted boys, unloved boys um, can go out into the world and really fuck a lot of shit up. They have the propensity to do a lot of things. And it's not necessarily saying that they're more important, but I'm saying for me personally, there is a specific need there. There's a specific need for them to understand what they're capable of how they're capable of, of helping and how they're also capable of hurting. Like these will be the boys that'll be in the situations and have six different women pregnant or be in a situation where they're abusive or be in a situation where all because they don't understand how to love, how to be loved, how to be emotionally available, how to be emotionally strong by also being vulnerable to their family. All of those things that a man who is, uh, who really loves you and shows up for you, all those things that they teach you, those boys have to have that. And it's a crisis if they don't. So the only reason why I would be specific is not because of, uh, I don't love little black girls, um, or I don't think that they need me. Of course they do. But it's because the hole that is there, I see that showing up in society in a specific way. And, you know, that can't be denied. Like, it, it, I'm not going to say when, when you talk about an epidemic, that's one thing. But when you talk about the fact that there are black men that are falling through the cracks that we need to, to address and like be a part of their lives, I wasn't prepared to disagree with anyone about that. 
no matter who that was. I'm not going to let it be weaponized for politics. It's got to be done through love. So if you don't love black people, you certainly can't love black boys. You know what I mean? But um, but yeah, I I I, I but I hear what you're saying though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Just a question. All right. Take the capsule. Does stop learning. I'm Van Lathan Jr. And I'm Rachel Lynn Lindsay. Bye, guys. <laughs>